Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Phoenix and the Ferryman. And tonight I have a really special guest, someone who takes the idea of healing so you can fly to a whole new level. So tonight I want to welcome Dr. Kevin Payne. Hi there. I <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. I think that your story will resonate really strongly with a lot of our people. Well, I'm delighted to be here with you, Krista. Thank you. You are so welcome. So I always like to start with something a little silly that you probably didn't think of ahead of time. So oh, Okay. <laughs> I see how you are. Right? So mm -hmm. if you could only pick one song that represented you and your life, what would that song be? Oh, geez. It depends on how I'm feeling that day. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm really down and and uh, living in the difficult parts, then it's got to be Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt. But if I'm having a really good day, then Tom Petty's Free Fallen. Oh, perfect. Music is powerful stuff. Music is one of our, is. our healing modalities, is getting in touch with Okay, that. my cat is jumbling things around. <laughs> I always love it when we have furry visitors. Well, I got a cat and a 120-pound Akita who may poke his head in here as we go. So. Oh, you're a big dog lover, too. Yeah, I have a, about 120-pound yeah. American Bulldog Boxer mix. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah, I've had Akitas for almost 30 years. I love them. They're beautiful. They're so beautiful. So let's get right into the nitty gritty of okay. the beginning of your story. So what led up to all the amazing things that you're going to tell us about? <laughs> <laughs> what was the well, catalyst that caused you to make the decisions that, that we're going to talk about? Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the really high level stuff. So I'm a child of the Apollo era, so I was always fascinated with heights and and what was up there. When I was a, when I was a, a kid in the 70s, for the first time at an air show, I saw a skydiver live, and and you know he came buzzing over the airfield in a little Cessna, hanging onto the prop, you know, onto the strut there on the side, and and let go and and. But the thing was, it wasn't a round parachute like we were familiar with at that time. It was a rectangle. It was a, you know, what we call a ram air parachute. And it flew like a glider and he could control it and he landed on target. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. And so, you know, I, I jumped off a lot of things as a kid and tried some some really crackpot ideas at, at, at making my own parachutes. Unfortunately, I didn't kill myself. So then later on in the 90s, when I was in grad school and I was working on my doctorate, uh, I, I decided I'd waited long enough and I'm going to try it. So I did. I found a, a, a skydiving club and it was about two hours away. So I went and, and I did, you know, I got a few jumps in. And back then there were no tandem jumps because tandems were invented in the 80s and they weren't, weren't common at all in the 90s. So if you wanted to skydive, you had to go through the training and you had to jump out by yourself unconnected with anything and, you know, land your own parachute. So that's how I started. 
and and then you know it was just like getting a doctorate done and the career and all that stuff it kind of got in the way and skydiving isn't a hobby it's a lifestyle choice so i finished my doctorate i became a professor i spent 15 years as a professor and about 10 years ago i left the academy to become a startup tech entrepreneur and so i've, I've done some startups and and the one that i have now uh, that this is my last startup <laughs> and it, it's your life lived well and that's you know it's my labor of love but all through that process and we you know, might get into more detail about some of this as we go but all through that process i was having these weird unexplainable health incidents so uh, you know for example i started itching everywhere and it never stopped. And I would, I would get, you know, my eyes would do funny things. And uh, I would get really tired for no reason. And I would get cognitively confused. And my balance would, you know, just completely leave me. So those kinds of things would come and go. And then finally in 2002, I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. It was just gone. And I thought I'd overdone my workout because I like to lift weights and I, you know, and I thought I'd just pinched a nerve or something like that. And in a few days, it was back to normal. But then it happened again and again and again. And sometimes it was a different part of my body. And then finally, one morning I woke up and I could feel my right arm and I could feel my head. But the rest of my body was completely gone. So my then wife said, you're going to get this looked at. <laughs> so I did. And that, you know, multiple sclerosis is difficult to diagnose. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. It's often called a snowflake disease because everybody's symptoms are different. Because you have to remember that what's happening here, and we know this now, but we didn't know it at the time I was diagnosed, that it's an autoimmune condition. And our immune system is attacking the myelin around the nerve fibers in our central nervous system. So my brain and my spinal cord are being eaten alive by my own, you know, autoimmune, by my own immune system. And so the symptoms I experience are going to be different from other people, depending on what part of my brain and spinal cord are attacked. If it's a part that has something to do with movement, well, then I have trouble with movement. If it has to do with feeling, then it's that. If it has to do with emotional regulation or cognition or you know anything, because everything we, we think, feel, do, say, dream passes through our central nervous system. So it's all fair game. And relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis comes and goes. But the, the scary thing about relapsing remitting ms is that every time it relapses every time it gets worse we don't know whether that's going to be the time when we're going to stop remitting and we're going to pass into secondary progressive ms so ms is a really confusing disease even if you are living it and and it's extraordinarily difficult to explain to somebody else because, you know, it's one thing if I can't walk 
or if I'm, you know, having some kind of difficulty with balance, other people can see that. And so, you know, it's like me, you know, when I, when I first knew about MS, I, I thought, oh yeah, it's one of those that puts you in a wheelchair. Well, no, not really. And most of us don't end up in wheelchairs. Most of what's going on is inside. So to wrap this up here and let you get a word in, <laughs> we, uh, you know, I left to become a tech entrepreneur. My MS had a really nasty exacerbation. It was a, a massive right frontal temporal lesion. And for those who are listening, who know what that, that means, that means a lot of symptoms that are very similar to dementia. And, you know, so I had uh, problems with emotional regulation. I had cognitive issues. I was really, it was really awful. And it it blew my family apart. Oh, and, and during all of this, I spent a decade supporting a wife who was on the verge of dying of cancer. And they managed to thankfully save her, uh, you know, with at with a, a radical surgery at like a very, very late stage three, a few weeks from when she would have died. Um, so we went through like a decade of my MS going crazy and her cancer going crazy. At the same time, we had little kids in the house and all the career stresses of shifting from, you know, the safest job in the world as a tenure track academic to the riskiest, you know, as a, a startup tech entrepreneur, because that always works out well. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, we had lasting and repeated trauma coming from all sorts of directions. And uh, so when I w ended up alone and with my MS in a really, really, really bad place and to the point where I just couldn't see a way forward with a life I was interested in living. I just, I didn't see it. And you know, there's there's just one part of me. And, you know, I by this time, I had long given up on the idea of ever actually getting back to skydiving. So my then son, you know, my son, who was then, you know, like, like, you know, early teens, uh, told me one day, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. And, you know, on the one hand, that's funny. On the other hand, inside, that was kind of soul crushing. Because, you know, every father wants their son to look up to him. And, you know, that, that really did a number on me. I thought, I need to do something. I need to try something. And I had lost so many dreams at that point. You know, I said, look, and, and then I thought, you know, I'm falling on the ground. I really need to get back up in the sky and try falling with style. And, and so I, even though I couldn't feel my legs, even though I, I have all these wonky problems, I, I said, I'm going to figure out a way to become a skydiver and not just do a skydive. I mean, become a legit skydiver and, you know, log hundreds of jumps and, and do it regularly and, get all the licenses and I've got a coach rating and, you know, like last year 
I logged 370 jumps in one year. So better than one a day. And, you know, they tell you when you have MS, the first thing they say is avoid stress. And I'm like, that's a load of crap. Life is stressful. All the good things in life are right on the edge with stressful. They challenge you. That's where you grow. That's where you learn. And, and that's where you find joy. And so the advice that we should be getting is you need to learn how to reframe stress and you need to learn how to manage it and, and have your stressful activities, but also forget that, you know, sometimes we want a battle, we've got a fight, but we also have to back off and we have to allow ourselves the time to rest and relax and nourish and recuperate. So that's kind of my mission in a nutshell. I went through all kinds of hell with with my condition, you know, both as a as diagnosed and as caregiver. And, you know, I'm also a scientist. So I I spent a decade, you know, it's like I can't I can't advise other people just based on my experience. So I interviewed hundreds and I surveyed thousands and I collected 2.23 million data points from the open web. And I did meta-analyses across over 7,000 studies on more than 100 conditions to put together, you know, what's in my book and what I talk about in the podcast and in the seminars that I do. And so it's, I, I get really enthusiastic about this, but it is a labor of love. I, if, if I can do anything to help someone have just a little bit easier journey, then that's worth it. Absolutely. Okay, I'll shut up. I'll shut up for a second. And I hope you guys out there listening are seeing the parallel because there are many illnesses and many conditions that are hidden wounds. So, so much of what he's saying is reflecting the same experiences that you guys that are struggling with PTSD have that same frontal lobe difficulty where you can't control your emotions, where you can't think logically and rationally, where those things are hijacked because you're, you're working in different parts of your brain. It's still your brain's not functioning quite right. And those experiences are very similar. Also taking the diagnosis and not just running with it, not just saying I've been diagnosed with PTSD. I'm just going to sit down and let it, take the rest of my life Mm -hmm. taking that step to make life amazing again is is imperative it's so important well one thing that the research tells us is that when we look back and there have been a handful of retrospective studies where they've followed people for decades and then asked them as they become very advanced in age so like octogenarians, nonagenarians, you know, they asked them, what made your life worthwhile? And universally, the things that made life worthwhile were experiences. They're the experiences that we have with other people. They're the experiences when we learn, when we grow, when we try new things, when we become accomplished at something. And, and those are the things that that give us meaning and 
so often we can allow illness or trauma or pain or stress to force us to withdraw from the world. And I've been there. I did that. And that's not living. That's existing. And and none of us wants that. And and it becomes so easy when you're in that place to forget what the path back to a life that you wanted looks like. We become lost really easily. We we forget. And 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 then we feel ashamed that we do. And no, that's nothing to be ashamed about because we're not prepared for this. By definition, trauma is when you experience anything that is so overwhelming and you are not prepared for it. And so many of us in the modern world are going through things that we shouldn't have to. And and even if we have signed up for it, you know, we haven't been trained to do it. And especially we haven't been trained for lasting and repeated trauma because we've only got the acute stress response. And the acute stress response is all about, oh my gosh, I see the flash of something in the underbrush and it's probably a saber-toothed tiger and I'm gonna run away, run away, or puff up myself real big or something like that. And that's gonna be good, right? And, and then whew, it's over with. But if you're getting like, you know, for me, for example, you know, I've, I, looking back on it, I've had a lot of traumatic incidents in my life. I mean, I've, I've had loaded guns pointed at me six times in my life, which is probably too much for anyone who didn't have a career in law enforcement or the military or criminal entrepreneurship. But, uh, you know, I, I did. And, and I've, you know, there's a lot of other incidents. But like with my illness, there have been a couple of times when I've been out and Heat sensitivity is a really common trigger for multiple sclerosis. And there've been a couple of times when I thought I was being respectful of my limits. So one time I was out running early in the morning on a Sunday morning, and because my legs were working pretty well that morning, and I thought this is really nice. And I got out and I, I thought I was being mindful of my limits and I didn't, and it hit suddenly. And so suddenly, my legs are completely spastic. They completely seize up on me. I'm paralyzed and I'm going from running to skidding face first through the gravel on the side of the road and I'm paralyzed there and I'm left there. And a couple of cars come driving along and don't stop. <laughs> and I don't know if they didn't see me or they're like, ooh, there's a body in the side of the road. I don't want to get anywhere near that. But, but you know, eventually uh, they, they, uh, my legs started working again, and and I limped home, and 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 that's a traumatic incident when when suddenly your body stops working on you when the thing that you trust to to be your vehicle through the world suddenly says forget you. So, trauma is everywhere. Trauma is everywhere. Um, yeah. We, we just had a conversation today. I, I had a client today that I had to explain that 
we all have trauma and that we all mm -hmm. react differently to trauma. So just because mm -hmm. it seems on the surface like it's a minor incident, it's not about the incident itself. It's not about what happened. Mm -mm. It's about how your system reacted to it's it. Reaction. And and if there's no right or wrong, it's literally, it could be cumulative from what happened when you were five years old. And this thing that just happened to you that didn't seem like a big deal reminded you of something that's in your system already. So mm -hmm. your logical mind doesn't have to grasp what trauma is or whether it's bad enough to cause the reaction. Your body's going to do what your body's going to do. And we have to work and, with that. Yeah. And people have to understand that our response to trauma is pre-rational. Okay. And what I mean by that is we adapted it long before we were human. It happens in real time faster than our frontal lobe engages. It's already doing its job if it detects something that it thinks is going to be traumatic before we ever think about it. And, you know, it's one of these things that we, we talk about it as the fight or flight response. And that's one of those things that really bugs me because I, I, I and I completely, uh, you know, uh, deconstruct it in chapter three and it's it's really not the fight or flight response it's the freeze freeze flight fight fright fawn fright freeze faint response i mean there, there are eight of them that i go into and they happen in a particular order and so what happens is there are a lot of behaviors that people engage in that are actually trauma-related behaviors where your, your system is mistakenly trying a particular strategy that your pre-rational brain thinks is a good idea. And they're a lot more varied than we think we're, we're attuned to looking for. There's, there's just so much more going on. It is a really fun conversation to have with people. Uh, especially when you get to sexual behavior because ah. a lot of people who are traumatized go to that response. I mean, yes, everybody's heard the fawn response, but most people have never heard it go beyond that into some of the other elements. And, and fuck mm -hmm. is it's a coping mechanism, but it's also a response. So you do those behaviors to protect yourself from perceived threat. And yes. a lot of people that I work with, are really in that loop. They're really in that response loop mm -hmm. and they do not understand. And, it, and they, they really are stuck on that fight, flight, freeze situation. They're like, I don't understand where this fits in there. I'm like, no, that's not the model. I mean, it is a model, but it's not the model. It's, it's a fraction <laughs> of it. Yeah, it's a fraction of it. And it's, it's just well, part of the story. Because, so because it's because nice to talk to someone who knows more than that. <laughs> yeah, because, because the trauma is... And, and especially when you get stuck in a trauma loop, you are re-engaging your parasympathetic nervous system all the time. You know, that, that fight or flight part. And, and, and your system is desperately trying to find something that's going to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. That rest and digest, or sometimes it's called the feed and breed part of the your nervous system and that's what allows us to relax and feel comfortable and safe and and so certainly 
you know, physically intimate behaviors are part of that. And, and that's, that's naturally seeking something that's going to engage the part of your system that's desperately trying to engage so that you can recover and nourish yourself. And the importance of relational involved in all of that. Mm -hmm. Always looking for that safe, that safe place that isn't yourself because we're not right. comfortable in our own skin. So somebody's got to right. rescue us. Somebody's got to fix us. Somebody's got to save us. Well, don't even get me started. I mean, the way I like to frame it is, is people, people have a, a much better understanding now about the idea that in a relationship, You've got to do certain things to to maintain a good relationship with another human. But they forget that all of the things that you should be doing to maintain a good relationship with another human, you need to be doing to maintain a good relationship with yourself. And, you know, I invite everybody listening to just take a second and stop and think. How do you treat yourself? And if somebody else treated you like you're treating yourself, would you stand to be in a relationship with you? No, probably not. And But unfortunately, you're stuck being in a relationship with yourself. So we all need better tools and, and we need to be kinder to ourselves. And we need to practice grace, not only with other people, but with ourselves. So what is the next big adventure for you? Gosh, um, getting this book out, uh, you know, it's out, it's out uh, February 7th. And I love the cover, you know. Oh, your book isn't out yet. Yeah, it's out February 7th. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that that cover was was shot 5000 feet above the earth at 120 miles an hour. Is that the photo that we used for No, that that was a different photo, but it was done during the same shoot. Um but this one and and okay, so people are like what in the heck is he doing there? I mean, you know, I love I wanted I had a very specific image in my mind about what I wanted with this. And and so it had to have the clouds and the sun on the horizon and all that. But if you'll if you'll notice there, I'm doing this. And every skydiver in the world will recognize this gesture. And in the introduction, I talk about what that means. So at the end of a skydive, you know, we're going, we're we're gonna die, right? We're we're headed to the earth at terminal velocity. So we have to do something to actively save ourselves. So at 5,000 feet, that means I'm 27 seconds from death. If I do nothing at that point, my life expectancy is less than half a minute at that point. So I've got to do something to save myself. And I'm warning everybody, I'm doing the wave off, I'm warning everybody in my airspace that I'm about to take action to save myself. And that's what the book is about. When you pick up that book, you are about to take action to save yourself. And that's why I wanted that cover to have that image. 
I love that. And I can't wait, can't wait to read it. Thank you. So I will definitely be getting a copy. It'll be available on Amazon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And okay. we're trying to get it in as many places as we can. I was, it was going to be released earlier, but there are supply chain issues with the paper supply right now. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do? So, uh, anyway, this gives me more time for more publicity and, and to try to get the word out. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a labor of love. And, and, you know, the book tells my story, like in these little vignettes in between, but the main part of the book is, you know, the science and, and, you know, each chapter is, is specifically framed around the idea of here are some misconceptions about say in chapter one being healthy that you're probably carrying around with you and so i'm going to disabuse you of those notions and here's what it really looks like and then the next chapters you know here's some misconceptions about being human and then about fear pain and stress and yada yada all the way through so Perfect. Because the thing is, everybody has this idea that we want one, we want somebody to come in and give us one simple solution that we can just do, and it's going to solve our lives. And at the very beginning of the book, I say, I'm going to tell you something that everybody has told me not to say, this is not an easy book. It's a difficult book. And it's a difficult book because there's no solution for your you know, for your problem, there is, however, a set of ways that you can find out which ones of these many, because because there are a million different ways to improve your life. All of them will work for someone, but only some of them will work for you. And the same ones will only work for a while for you. Then you're going to change, your environment's going to change, and you're going to have to have new techniques. So the book isn't about pushing one particular method. It's about teaching you how to recognize what's going to work for you right now. And that's the scientist in you. And I am on the exact mm -hmm. same page. And it, it feels like Everyone I talk to in the coaching sphere or even in the teaching sphere, they don't like that. They don't like the idea that we sell that we sell small bits of truth instead of a one size fits all solution. That we're in a world where we recognize that everyone's an individual and there's science to how your brain works and there's science to how your body works. And if you know that science, you can make intelligent decisions for yourself based on your knowledge as to how you can fix your life. Right. Well, uh, you know, the, the cool thing is, so like right now we've got the, the seminars and the workshops and all the education stuff coming out, you know, that that's already out. And then the book is coming out in February, but about a year from now, we've got the app coming out and I've spent a little over a decade coming up with, you know, doing the research for a better way to help people through behavior and mindset change. Because fundamentally, 
all of these problems. You know, you want to lose weight, you want to exercise, you want to not have the traumatic reactions, all of that comes down to behavior change and mindset change. And, you know, again, there's, there's, there's so many different ways to do it. So it's a, it's a technology based on a whole lot of data and a whole lot of research that profiles you as you are in your circumstance and says, here's the most likely strategy you can use right now and then monitors you. And if you're not on the expected trajectory, it suggests you flip over to the second most likely thing for people like you in your condition, you know, and, and just keeps going like that. Until you find the right fit. Until you find the right fit for (laughs) now. Mm -hmm. Because this is not, this is about changing your lifestyle. And part of that is becoming more mindful and more respectful of yourself. So before we close, what is like, if you could say one thing to our audience, what would you close with? What would you leave them with? We all have this desire inside to change and grow and improve ourselves. And what I call our inner cave child is, is often running the show. And, and your inner cave child, which is often the part of your brain that is triggered by trauma and is often what is driving when your acute stress response is being triggered, has an attention span of about this big and it wants things now and we have to develop patience because the only way we get to consistency you know consistent change because everybody can change for a day or two or a week um you know and and we're we're headed into a new year here and a whole lot of people will have resolutions and over 50% of those resolutions will have been busted within about two weeks. And, and we have to understand that behaviors are like icebergs. And we think we're just changing this little thing. I'm not going to pick up that cupcake or whatever it is. But behaviors are also doing identity work. They're you know, feeding into so many aspects of how we see ourselves and how we, you know, how other people see us and they're, they're contributing at so many, at so many mental and emotional levels. We've got to cut ourselves a break and we've got to realize that it's, it's a long process and it's a painful process and it's going to require a lot of backsliding and we're going to have to say, okay, that's all right. And not, and not clamp down on ourselves and be mean to ourselves. We've, we've got to hug ourselves and we've got to support ourselves and say, yeah, I know that's, that's tough and good on you for trying and keep doing the tiny little things. You know, I have something I call plan C and you know, everybody has plan A, some people have plan B, and they think, ooh, they're all that in a bag of chips. It's like, look how much planning I have. But with my MS, I have realized 
plan B is not enough because there's some days that my condition has just completely overwhelmed everything. And, and so now what I'm living with is the choice between getting nothing done that day. And, and that's not just a practical issue. That's soul crushing when you've got a lot of days where, where you don't feel like you've made a contribution to the world in a way that you would like to. So plan C is the smallest, tiniest thing that I can reliably do, even when the condition is really bad, so that by the time I get to the end of that day, that's something concrete that I can hold on to, that I can say, yes, I got out of this day with more than nothing. Because we don't want to string together a bunch of nothing days. And yet we've got to realize we're going to have sometimes a string of, of really, really bad days. So your plan C is the thing that you can get out of that day reliably that will give you a sense of respect and, and a sense of accomplishment. That's what I'd say. <coughs> that one thing, days. Yeah. You and I are so on the same page. We are going to need to stay in touch. <laughs> Very good. I'd love to. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And if people are looking for you, where can they find you? Yes, we want them to go to yourlifelivedwell.co. .co and... Uh, there, there's, and then they can find the links for all of the, the social media and, uh, you know, what we're doing for, uh, seminars and webinars and things like that. And, and the Patreon we're about to fire up so they can help support that way. But yourlifelivedwell.co is the place and they can sign up for the list and they can get a free hundred pages, uh, from the book now so that they can uh, get some of the adventure about how I you know, ended up jumping out of planes and, and also uh, you know, uh, some, some real substantive uh, ideas to help them rethink what health and illness actually are. And we will put the link once the book is available on Amazon, we will put the link in the Battle to Be Resources library. So Great, you guys you. can uh, you can purchase it there. Uh, if if you forget and you can't find it, it will be in the Battle to Be Resource library as soon as it's available. So very good. <laughs> thank you very much, and have an amazing night. Thank you guys so much for being here with us this evening. And we are going to sign out.